Let's pray and uh, we'll get into this week's study. Father, we give thanks to you once again. Thanks for um, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all that he has accomplished um, for your glory and on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask you to bless our time this morning as we continue uh, in this um, this series on how to study the Bible. We pray that it will be profitable for us and the things that we consider this morning will be uh, things that we can continue to take with us uh, throughout the remainder of our lives in, in good, consistent um, Bible study. We pray for your blessing now on our time. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you can get a handout, there's some on both sides back there in the back. Grab a handout. Uh, last week, we talked through uh, the genre aspect of Bible study. Um, and this morning, we're going to turn and look at some tools that we have or can develop for Bible study. Um, this class is actually going to be less about uh, using commentaries, although we're going to talk about that at the end of our time together. Uh, and it's going to be more about searching for and developing our own, uh, on our own, the many elements that many commentaries and handbooks will have within them um, as we study God's word. We can develop some of those and put them in place ourselves. So uh, there are many elements that we can pull together ourselves from observation and discernment and uh, um, others that we may need to rely on the scholarship of others for. Uh, so examples of some of the elements seen in commentaries that you and I may, may be able to discern from the text um, are in your handout, you know, purpose, uh, setting, structure, whereby an outline uh, may be produced, um, and the understanding of language so that the main points or the themes of the passage can be determined. Um, all of those things are things that we can get a pretty good grasp on just from reading through the text itself. Um, examples of some elements seen in commentaries that you and I may not be able to discern without the help of scholarship of others include like the date of its writing, um, that critical uh, understanding of the text, when was it written, um, uh, things like the historical and cultural background, things we may not be aware of uh, that may be hinted at in the text but may not be explicit. Um, uh, manners and customs of Bible times, things like that that we may not know. Things like that we can use good resources, and we're going to talk about that at the end um, of our time together. But as we begin, it's, it's important once again just to remind you of context. Context is key when it comes to understanding the Bible. H have you ever seen a verse being used out of context? <laughs> okay. Um, give me give me some examples of verses that you've seen used out of context. Go ahead, Philip. I, I heard you. Okay, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, when it applies to sports. Okay, yes. Hey, amen. We have that power, don't we? Okay. All right, wherever two or more are gathered in my name. Yeah, it's seen as a, heard of as a positive and not, oh, hey, uh, this is actually given in the context of church discipline. Yeah, okay, that's another good one. Yeah, what others? Con um, passages taken out of context. Jeremiah 29.11, yeah. I have plans for you. And uh, we, we take that out of context. Yeah, any others? God's love? Okay. God is love. God is love. That's right. And that's all he is. That's taken out of context. Yeah. Yeah, my favorite actually is in Genesis 31, and it's the covenant of Mizpah. You guys know that one? 
So some of you, this might date you. Uh, I grew up in the Sears catalog time. How many of you grew up in the Sears catalog time? Okay, good, good. Um, you know, I'm going through the Sears catalog and there's this uh, necklace, the Mizpah necklace, right? Where it's a circle and it's got this cut down the middle. And you give one half to your friend and you keep the other half. Anybody, you, did, any, did any of you remember that, the Mizpah necklace? Okay, yeah. And so it says on it, the Lord watch between me and thee when we are apart, right? But the context of that is the covenant that uh, Laban and Jacob make that, you know, uh, here is this pile of stones and it is going to watch over us. It's our witness. If you do anything to Laban, it's actually Laban, if you do anything to harm my daughters, I'm coming after you. You know, that's the context that it's in, not, you know, the Lord watched between me and it's a Lord, the Lord's going to watch between me and you, buddy. You know, that's the, that's what is, what's that, what it is more than anything else. So, yeah. So understanding context is huge when it comes to understanding the Bible properly. And so uh, it's also important when, we, when it comes to understanding uh, anything, purpose, setting, uh, just all the things that we're going to be talking about this morning. So um, whenever we approach the passage of Scripture, um, we should always ask two questions. Why did the author write it? What is the context? Why did the author write it? What is the context? And so knowing the purpose and the context of a verse or passage will help you understand your Bible correctly and prevent you from um, making some of the errors, um, <laughs> some of the errors we just talked about, right? So... Let's, let's begin talking about our, this first tool that we have here this morning, uh, the author's purpose. So every book of the Bible was written with a specific purpose in mind. Therefore, we should interpret each part of a book in light of that purpose, that overall goal. This means that um, we would say that you can't impose whatever meaning you want on the text. Um, the problem with this approach is that the Bible is God's word, not man's word, not our word. Um, its overarching purpose is to tell us about him. And so we need to understand what he's trying to accomplish. Uh, we know the biblical writers were inspired by God, therefore their purpose is God's intention. So let's take a look at some passages to see how to uncover the author's intention. Uh, we'll start with some where the author's intent is easy to spot. So please turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Um, here, I think we have an explicit and clear purpose. Um, most of you know this. It's not going to be news to you. Um, John is very clear about why he wrote his gospel. So if you'll read with me in verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the dis disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So why did John write the book of John, the Gospel of John. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's also clear when it comes to his, his first epistle that he writes, 1 John, uh, does anybody know what 1 John 5.13 says? 1 John 5.13, these things I've written unto you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you're, if you're, if you're uh, struggling with assurance, assurance of your salvation, 1 John might be a good book to go to because these things are written so that you might know that you have eternal life. All right. So those are examples of uh, a place where it's clear and explicit. Um, now, if you would uh, turn with me to um, 2 Timothy. Let's turn with me to 2 Timothy, if you would. 
Um, what if the intention isn't as obvious or explicit? In these cases, we need to examine the text. We need to try and understand why it was written, what the main themes are. <clears throat> when the intent is not clear, uh, whether it's a New Testament epistle, whether it's an Old Testament prophet, uh, try to answer the four questions you, that are in your handout here uh, to get a sense of the purpose. Who's writing to whom? What is the situation of the author and the reader? Are there any problems or issues that are being addressed? Are there any repeated themes or a single idea holding the book together? So let's, let's read verses uh, 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 15. And let's answer these questions together, see if we can get a better idea of why Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm grateful to God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I unceasingly, unceasingly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, having remembered your tears, so that I may be filled with joy, being reminded of the unhypocritical faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am convinced that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been manifested by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard whom I have, what I have entrusted to him until that day. Hold to the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of this that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. All right, so who's writing the book and to whom is he writing? Paul, and he's writing to Timothy. That's pretty straightforward. All right, second, what is the situation of the author and the reader? Some of it you might discern from the text, some of it you might not. What's that? Okay, the author, Paul, is actually in prison. What's in this text that kind of indicates his current situation? Hmm? Okay. All right, yep. So he's separated from Timothy. Um, he's sorrowful because of it. Um, yeah, anything else in the, in the context here? Join with me in suffering. Yeah. Yeah. It's not explicitly said that he's in prison, but we know this is the second time he's in prison in Rome. And so um, Paul's in a precarious situation here. All right. Um, what about the, the reader, Timothy? Where's Timothy? Ephesus. Yeah. He's been at Ephesus taking care of the church of, to, you know, of the Ephesians there. Um, are there any problems or issues that are being addressed? Any problems or issues that you see? Yeah, that's a huge problem, isn't it? 
Did, did you, you guys catch that in verse 15? All right. All who are in Asia turned away from me. Wow, that's a pretty strong, bold statement. He, Paul's feeling alone, right? Um, that's, a, that's a pretty big problem, don't you think? Is that informing what Paul is telling Timothy? And why is telling, Timothy telling? I mean, why is Paul telling Timothy all of these things? Yeah, do, when you when you look at um, look at verse um, nine, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, um, and he's writing to Timothy. Do you get the sense that he's kind of passing on a, a mantle, if, as if it were a mantle, like in the Old Testament, uh, where um, Elijah passes on the mantle to Elisha? Do you get that sense here at all? Um, knowing where he's at, knowing where Timothy is, that there's this, in this whole book, you kind of get this sense that Paul is talking to Timothy about standing firm, um, holding fast, guarding uh, the treasure that he has, and, uh, and reminding him uh, of the sincere faith that was in his mother and grandmother, and encouraging him to press on. Yeah, so you can, you can gain a lot of understanding just from the context uh, of a passage. Um, remember, if you don't understand the author's purpose, you, you won't necessarily get the passage completely wrong uh, by God's grace, um, but you'll probably end up simply affirming a general truth rather than seeing uh, the deeper meaning uh, of the passage. Our thoughts or comments on the author's purpose? Anything you would like to add or um, just uh, comment on? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's providing some contrast. Any other thoughts or comments? All right, so we should always keep in mind uh, that God's underlying purpose in all of Scripture is the revelation of his character and therefore his glory, uh, primarily as it's displayed through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, therefore, we, we sit down to study God's word as we seek to discern uh, the purpose and the context of a passage. We should do so with the goal of, of growing in our knowledge of God and growing in our understanding of him in all his glory. All right, so let's talk about setting. Yes, go ahead. So the, the question is, can he go back to 1 Timothy to understand the context and setting and the, and the things that Paul's writing in 2 Timothy? Yes, you can. Uh, you don't want to make a hard and fast connection like that. everything he's talking about in 2 Timothy has to do with what he's talking about in 1 Timothy. But oftentimes, maybe the author's in the same place, or the reader's in the same place, maybe they're not. Uh, so, um, it's, But there can be connections between the two. Yeah, absolutely. All right, oftentimes uh, the keys to understanding the setting of a book may be derived from the first few verses of the, of the, of the beginning of the, the book or a few of the verses at the end with a handful of verses smattered throughout the book that you can really um, get a full understanding, a fuller understanding of the scope of um, the setting of the book. Um, the place in which it's written uh, the people or place to whom it was written, uh, the indications of circumstances and events 
surrounding its writing all help to provide that setting for you. Um, the purpose for which it was written can also be uh, part of the bearing upon the setting. So, um, and at times other books can also, uh, like Ryan was just saying, can help provide setting, uh, much like the book of Colossians and Philemon, right? Philemon uh, was actually a, one of the prominent members of the Colossian church, and he's mentioned at the end of the book of Colossians. So there's some uh, other books that might bear upon the setting for the book that you're reading that might be important for you to know. Um, however, there are further elements of the setting that will be gained from history and culture, um, but an initial of understanding of most books may be gained from the internal evidence of the book. Um, so that's, I'm not going to go any deeper into setting, but uh, any comments or questions on setting? All right, so let's continue on and discuss the next important interpretive tool, and that's structure, um, breaking up larger sections of Scripture to help us understand uh, the meaning of the whole. Uh, can be really helpful uh, to our interpretation. So we want to ask ourselves two questions when we're trying to understand the stru structure of a passage. Um, has the author divided his material into sections? And how do those sections fit together? And that first question is key. Um, has the author divided his material into sections? Not, not all portions of Scripture have an overarching structure to them. Uh, but when a book appears put together in a particular pattern or order, it's important that we understand what that structure is. Uh, that way we can see more clearly what the author is trying to do at each point within the book. So, so how do I figure out the structure of a passage? So if you look down in your handout, you'll see a few tips for doing this there, a few of these questions. So number one, look for repeated words or repeated themes. Uh, second, in narratives, uh, look for scene changes. Uh, uh, pretend you're a movie director or a playwright and ask yourself, um, did the action just just switch scenes here? Um, if not, why did the author move on to something different? Um, what's happening? Um, am I missing anything? Uh, number three, uh, in dialogues, you can often divide the text up based on who is speaking. Uh, for example, uh, in the book of Job, it matters a lot who's speaking at that particular time. Um, if it's Job speaking, or if it's God speaking, or if it's one of Job's friends speaking, you need to know that in order to be able to properly understand what's going on in the text and what, uh, what you need to think through. Uh, number four, in some places, the structure that's used is the structure of a legal argument. Um, Malachi is a good example of this, um, as is Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, you'll, you'll see in Romans 1 and 2, uh, Paul establishes that, that everyone is under God's wrath because of their sin. Um, and for the Gentiles in chapter 1, and the Jews in chapter 2, and then he wraps up everybody in the none are good clothing at the beginning of chapter 3, but then when he gets to the end of chapter 3, he begins the argument about the free gift of salvation in Christ for those who believe. So you have this kind of legal argument. You also see it again in Romans 9, uh, where um, it's a type of legal argument where you kind of dismantle the objections uh, that you know are coming before they get to speak them verbally. And so um, Romans 9 does that very well. Um, so if you see a logical progression of thought, like in Romans, it may well be that the author is presenting a progressive argument that you need to be aware of. And you, you do well to trace out that argument uh, so you have a, a, good, a good basis for understanding uh, that text. Um, Incidentally, you'll, you'll notice, and I'm, I'm not telling you anything you, you don't already know, but you'll find that, that paragraphs, uh, chapter divisions, and verse divisions uh, that are in your Bible aren't always helpful. Um, they are not part of the inspired Word of God. 
Um, and so uh, you might find like, um, uh, like we did when we went through the book of Colossians in chapter uh, four, uh, that the first verse of that should actually be with the previous chapter. Um, so it might be helpful for you to, when you're doing a, a Bible study, to go to a place like uh, literalword.com. Uh, if you don't have the Literal Word app on your phone, that's a good place to go. But if you pull it up on your on a website, uh, Literal Word will will give you three options as far as a style: uh, the default option, the study option, and the literary option. The literary option uh, takes out the uh, verse the verse category, so you don't have the verse numbers sitting in it. And you could even copy and paste that into your uh, Word document or a um, your word processor, and even take out the paragraphs if you wanted to, just so you can read it all in a flow um, without any of the divisions that uh, the, the modern authors uh, of the Bible put there. And so um, it might be helpful for you as you're beginning to study uh, this passage, not having those modern constructs that are put there and trying to discern it yourself. Um, once you've once you've broken out your passage into subsections, whether based on a scene or an argument, a theme or repeated phrases, it's useful to then give each section a summary title if you can. Uh, this forces you to think about what the main point of each section is uh, and write it down. So, um, and don't feel like you have to marry yourself to your first attempt at. As summarizing this section. You may summarize it and then come back going, that's really not a good summary of that, and you might change it. Uh, and that's helpful. Um, in Bible study, you're going to do this all the time. It's, as, you, as you read it, as you read it in its context, you're going to come back going, no, really, this passage, this section really is saying this instead. So, um, you know, as we've said before in a letter, the sections might be arguments that build on each other, or in the case of a narrative, uh, the sections might contrast or complement one another. So along the way, you might find that you've started an outline. Um, uh, you're outlining your section of Scripture. So often it can be helpful to go ahead and finish an outline, uh, figuring out what he's saying, when he's saying it, to whom he's saying it. Um, outlining a chapter or even an entire book can be a great way to follow the flow of thought and see how structure uh, the structure reveals meaning. Um, of course, memorizing a passage of Scripture, the one that you're particularly focused on, if, uh, is really helpful uh, to, to understanding um, that, that, that book well because you're going to notice um, patterns, you're going to notice recurring themes um, that give evidence of structure. And uh, some of you youth are doing your memorization. You've probably already seen this multiple times where you're seeing those repeated themes where the author comes back to it again and again. All right, so seeing how the author has structured what he's saying will help us see the, the, the big idea of the whole passage. So thoughts or comments on structure before we move on to the next tool. All right, linking words. So what are linking words? Um, identifying linking words and how they, they work helps us understand the relationship between uh, various phrases. Um, these linking words are gonna help us understand, uh, goes into the overall theme and understanding of uh, the book. Um, remember when you're, you're little and your mom said, don't touch the stove because it'll burn you. Do you remember that? Or don't ask for that BB, that, that Red Rider BB gun because what? Shoot your eye out, right. Um, because it gives you um, uh, this contrast. And so uh, the word become, because links the two clauses together, tells us what being burned is the reason or grounds for why you should not touch the stove, right? So linking words can be used a number of ways. Um, so you've got them all bullet pointed here. Uh, first of all, to give examples. For instance, 
and then you give your example or to add information furthermore um, notwithstanding there's all kinds of uh, um, information that can be added after that and use other terms uh, to summarize um, you might hear in short or to sum up um, Peter does that first Peter 3 um, he's talking he talks about wives uh, to their husbands and husbands um, understand you know living with their wives in an understanding way and then he says to sum up I want all of you to be harmonious right once you live together in peace um, to sum up is what the term he uses uh, also to show us to sequence or to show a progression of ideas uh, firstly secondly finally um, will be uh, a linking linking word um, to give a reason uh, because for or if, in the sense of since, um, you might have that there, um, to give a result or a purpose, uh, so that, um, I'm going to challenge you uh, to, to go home and read a passage here uh, and, and work on that passage, and that passage has a lot of so that's in it, uh, to, to see that helps you understand the overall, uh, the overall meaning of the text. Um, contrast ideas. However, uh, this this other idea, distinguish things and um, this and this, um, indicate a particular consequence of the preceding statement. Therefore, consequently, for this reason, or to make a statement conditional, as in Deuteronomy, you have, you know, if you listen, <laughs> I'm going to do this, if you do not obey, this is going to happen. So you have these conditional statements um, that are uh, frequently throughout the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy. Uh, and then to tell the purpose behind something or to introduce the result of something, um, so that. So the, the activity I'd like you to encourage you to do at home is to read Titus 2, 1 through 8 and underline the linking ver words um, I believe it'll help you make more sense of that passage of scripture as you see what is linked together. Um, speak to things fitting for sound doctrine. And then he goes into um, all of the, the people he wants to talk about in regard to speaking the things fitting for sound doctrine. All right, number five, repetition. Repetition. Um, an American author observed once any idea, plan, or purpose may be placed in the mind through repetition of thought. Any idea, plan, or purpose may be placed in the mind through repetition of thought. Uh, this seems to be the, a, a correct observation of something that's already known by the Bible's uh, divine and human authors. Uh, the repetition of words, phrases, and ideas within Scripture is one method of drawing the attention of the reader uh, to highlight something that's important, um, maybe even central, um, central point of the text. Uh, so the repetition tool, like many other tools we've discussed, it's, it's not a skeleton key that magically unlocks all of the passage's meaning. However, it does assist us in our study and can provide clarity for understanding. So let's consider the use of repetition and um, these are also in your, your handout here, and I want to turn to each one of these texts. So, um, so the first use of repetition, highlight, highlighting the main point. So turn, turn with me to John chapter 6. You know this passage. Uh, Jesus has finished uh, just the day before feeding 5,000. He crosses the sea. Um, the people wake up the next day, where is he? And they hunt him down. And then um, they begin grumbling and complaining um, about him. But look at verse 47, and we'll read through verse 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Also, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me also, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So what is being repeated here that's important to point out? Helps with the meaning of the text. Okay. Yeah, anyone anyone else want to take a stab at that a little more clearly? Okay, yeah, so there is contrast in here too, but we're looking for the repetition. What's the repetition that Jesus continues to use? Yep, he does repeat, I am the bread of life, absolutely. Um, but one of the things you, ke you keep seeing is Jesus saying, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, um, you have no life in yourselves. This, this, this repeated uh, phrase, uh, once again in verse 54, he who eats flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Um, and then uh, verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Um, so you have, uh, you have this repeated eating my flesh, drinking my blood, and each time he says it in a different way and, and adds something to it or says something differently that helps us understand the meaning of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So that's uh, an example of repetition that highlights the main point of this particular passage. All right, the, the next one here. Uh, it reveals the author's opinion or interpretation of the narrative, um, Daniel 3, 1 through 7. Uh, we, we probably don't even have to turn there because you guys have, uh, remember this because it's uh, um, something we covered um, not long ago. Uh, I don't think it was long ago anyway. Um, Daniel 3, uh, 1 through 7, um, it's almost uh, one of those things where you kind of get tired of having to read the same thing over and over again. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to point it out to you. But you have in verse 2, well, let's just read it, and then you can tell me. Um, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 60 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to get to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the judges, and the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they were standing before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly called out to you, it's, it is said, O peoples, nations, and men of every tongue, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at the time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, and all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. All right, did you see some repetition here? Did you hear some repetition? Yeah, what was the repetition that you heard? What? Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That was one of the things that you saw that, that the 
author really wants you to know that this, this is something that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What else is repeated? Okay, yes. The, yes, all of these ranks of people. No one's excluded from what Nebuchadnezzar had set up, right? So, and he's repeating it so that everybody knows no one is excluded from this, right? What else is repeated? Nebuchadnezzar the king, yep. He's the purpose of it. What else is repeated? Yeah, the list of instruments. And actually, if you continue to go on through the book, that list of instruments repeated again and again and again, right? Um, there's purpose in the repetition, and it reveals the author's opinion, and it helps interpret the narrative that is there. All right, now let's turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. And we'll look at some things that emphasize, repetition that emphasizes the main idea. 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Understand what I say, for the Lord will give you insight in everything. Okay, so what's, what's the main idea that's being repeated here um, that Paul is trying to emphasize to Timothy? And he's He's repeating an idea or concept. Okay. Um, a, a soldier, doesn't he just use that analogy? What else does, what other analogy does he use? The athlete and what else? The farmer. All right, so what's common? What's connecting each one of these Okay, the qualities of each is being emphasized. And what particular qualities? Right. Okay. What? Okay. Okay. I, I would probably put it in a category of more like sacrifice, right? The soldier doesn't entangle himself with the affairs of everyday life, right? So there's this aspect of separation. The athlete sacrifices he has to compete according to the rules that are established the the farmer has to wait patiently upon upon it and there's also this theme of hard work and labor isn't there's this theme of labor here the soldiers laboring the athlete is laboring the farmer is laboring so you have these concepts that are repeated in this verse that help us understand the idea that Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy. All right, and then the last one here, uh, Revelation 18. If you'll turn there with me, Revelation 18. Oh, this, of course, this verse is, this chapter is all about America, right? It says it in the passage. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. Um, and America is Babylon, right? Anyway, there's... All right, verse uh, 9 through 11, and then verse 15 through 20. 9 through 11, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived sensuously with her will cry and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. 
And the merchants of the earth cry and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. And drop down to verse 15. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, crying and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste, and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, crying and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who have ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. All right, so what's being repeated here? (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Uh, the woes, uh, three times repeated here. Um, uh, what else is being repeated? Yeah, the wealth that was attained by all the merchants uh, surrounding this great city. Um, they are now mourning the, the loss of income because this great city has been burned, right? Um, what else was repeated? It's one hour, yeah. Um, this, this, uh, the destruction that came was pretty quick. So it sets the tone, the feeling of the text. Um, so up to this point, we've covered a, a number of tools. Uh, even if you employ all of the methods and tools we've discussed in the class uh, today, um, the day will come when you want to go deeper and uh, in your Bible study. And, and this should be an encouragement to you as you dig in and you go, I, I want to know more. I want, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty to know more. And it means you're under, interacting with the text in a more meaningful way and that you're maturing in your understanding of God's word. And he's blessing you with an appetite for even more in your studies. So fortunately, God's provided wonderful Bible commentaries and tools and other resources for us to use so that we might plumb even deeper uh, into the depths of his truth. So let's begin by talking about commentaries. Uh, that's on the back side of your, your handout. Um, uh, frankly, when many people think of Bible study tools, they only think of Bible commentaries, and they imagine that all that is required in Bible studies is to simply look up what's written in some type of commentary, and voila, you're finished. You've gotten your understanding of the passage. Now you know what the passage means. Uh, nothing really uh, could be farther from the truth. In fact, if you're going to use a Bible commentary, it's best to use it towards the end of your study, not the beginning. You, you, don't, you don't want to use a commentary at the beginning of your study. Um, why? Because if all you do is use a Bible commentary and all you know is the interpretation and conclusions of that commentary's author, you will only be learning their opinions. And because you didn't take the time to actually study the Bible for yourself, you'll have no frame of reference from which to teach someone else. You'll have no way to judge the correctness of the interpretations offered to you in that commentary. So in other words, all you'll be able to be capable of doing is repeating what someone else has said, and you won't be able to be able to tell if those opinions are correct. Uh, Far too much of what passes as biblical teaching today can be nothing more than a passing around of someone else's view and understanding of things. So remember, study your Bibles like we've been teaching over the past four weeks and this morning, and then look at a Bible commentary. Don't look at it first. Um, We actually want to encourage you all to do this. Um, When Greg is teaching through a, um, a book of the Bible, and he's going through that book week in and week out, and you know what passage he's going to be preaching on the next week, we want to encourage you. Go ahead and start studying that passage, right? 
work through that passage, um, and we want you to be able to study what we've done as we've done in class, and then on Sunday morning, you can check your interpretation as you listen to a sermon. So that being said, why, why even bother with Bible commentaries at all? Well, they're useful for a number of reasons. So first of all, uh, the better ones are written by acknowledged authorities on a particular book um, of the Bible, oftentimes men and women who've spent years and years of their life studying that book in detail, so they definitely have something to share. Uh, in addition, Bible commentaries often give details about the historical period, the culture, the language, um, manners and customs, information that would take you too much time to compile on your own. Um, often commentaries will discuss difficult doctrinal or theological problems or concepts associated with particular Bible passages. And in short, the, the better commentaries uh, place vast amounts of biblical research right at your fingertips that you can reach out and grab. So commentaries are also most particularly useful for checking your own work. Um, that is really the best reason to have a Bible commentary is to check your own work. You can check several Bible commentaries and to see if, if others understand and interpret the Bible the same way you did. If you have a singular and different interpretation than all of the other commentaries, you better check yourself, right? Um, people who claim to have a new perspective or insights that no one else has are usually wrong. And make sure that isn't you. Check your opinions, your conclusions against the insights gathered by the people of God through the ages. Um, so what, what are the types of commentaries that are out there? And there, I'm going to speak very broadly because there's a lot of commentaries that will intermix several of these broad categories. Um, so um, an exegetical commentary is one um, a homiletical commentary, and then a devotional commentary. So an exegetical one can be defined as, um, as the practice of and the set of procedures for discovering the author's intended meaning. Um, it's what we've, been, what we've been describing actually throughout this class um, in, in our remarks so far. So um, homiletical or preaching commentaries are more... Um, self-consciously focused upon making application relevance for the person's life who's reading it um, to the modern contemporary world. And, and really, because of that, they often become outdated fairly quickly. Um, um, most such commentaries are weak, weaker concerning explanation of the text meaning uh, compared to exegetical uh, commentaries. And then uh, devotional commentaries is the, the last broad uh, commentary. Um, it's, uh, they're, they're homiletical in nature, very similar to that. Um, but their focus usually is more individualistic, um, impressionistic. Uh, they, they give more general thought about a whole passage, um, not, or maybe even just a particular verse but they are referencing the whole passage. Um, devotional commentaries often comment at random or in general, um, and they pay little or no attention to the broader context. Uh, good, there are some good devotional commentaries out there. Um, have you ever read Evening and Morning by C.H. Spurgeon or listened to them on audio book, which is what I've done? They're, they're really good. So uh, there can be some good devotional commentaries out there. You have to be careful. Um, if you're looking for a good set of, of commentaries, I'm just going to tell you the ones that I would recommend, and I'll open it up and anyone else would want to throw some in there. Um, so for the whole Bible, the Expositor's Bible Commentary Series is a good series. I've used that um, a lot. Uh, the New American Commentary Series is a good series. Um, I don't always... Uh, now, I'm, I'm giving these these series, but... Not every author that authors a particular book within the series is someone whom we would agree with or whom I agree with. And so 
you're reading them, but you're reading critically. You're, you're, you're looking at what they're saying. You're thinking as well. You're not just taking what they're saying. Um, the, New, the New Testament commentary series by Hendrickson and Kistemaker is a good series. Uh, that's been super helpful for me. Um, they don't have the same doctrinal background that, that we would have. Um, Hen, I like Hendrickson a lot more than I like Kistemaker, um, but I like both of them. They, they're both brilliant men. Um, the Pillar New Testament commentary series, um, here's an example of one. This is one's written by D.A. Carson. This one's the Gospel According to John. Um, and if, I'll have these resources up here at the front if you want to look at a couple of these. I only brought a few examples of different uh, commentary series. Uh, the New International Greek Testament commentary series has also been helpful for me. Um, that one's also more technical with a lot of Greek terminology in it, so it might not be something that you might find as helpful. But even, even with that, Without, you know, if, if you go, well, I don't understand that section at all, and there are some sections I don't understand what they're saying, and I'm like, but the context of what they're saying is also helpful um, to me as well. Um, the MacArthur New Testament Commentary Series, you guys are all familiar with his series. Um, that's always a good, um, a good resource. Um, then um, also um, one that's been helpful for me is uh, the Preaching the Word Commentary Series by R. Kent Hughes. Um, that's been a helpful um, New Testament commentary series as well. So those are just some of the series I found most helpful as a lay elder um, for me in preparation to teach. Um, any other suggestions or comments on commentaries or series that you guys would point to that you found helpful? Okay. Yep. Matthew Henry's an old stalwart. Um, I have his both in book series and in digital form, so. All right. Um, Calvin's, Calvin's commentary series. Wolvert, yeah. I fully agree with that. That's one I, I frequently consult as well. Yeah, Bible Knowledge Commentary by John Wolvert. Excellent. Um, I'm kind of a little bit over time, but um, Bible dictionaries are good. Um, I don't use them a lot now, but they're, they're like any other dictionary uh, where you're looking up a word, but most of the th terms in it are theological uh, thoughts, um, theological words, uh, biblical places, biblical people. Um, you can look those up, so they're pretty helpful for you. Um, there's a list of, of things here um, that you should consider when looking for uh, Bible commentaries or um, Bible dictionaries, the reputation their recency, their references, and their relevancies. Um, so the New Bible Dictionary um, by InterVarsity Press is a good one, uh, written from an evangelical perspective. I use the Lexham Bible Dictionary in my Logos Bible software program. I don't use it frequently, but they are a good resource. Um, just to mention two other uh, tools, um, one would be charts and maps for those of you who are more um, drawn to visual concepts. It's helpful to have a book that can supply charts, maps, uh, biblically accurate visual renderings. Uh, for this, I would recommend uh, this one here, the Rose Book of Bible Charts, Maps, and Timelines. Um, it's an excellent visual representation. Um, they've got, like, this is a picture of Solomon's temple on here, um, and it's really accurate according to uh, the biblical record. Um, if you want to look at the have pictures of the tabernacle, it's really accurate according to the biblical record, what it might look like. Um, so you can get those visual representations, Bible charts, uh, timelines uh, through different uh, lists of, of all the kings of, of Judah, lists of the kings of, of uh, Israel, and, and those types of things are just really helpful to look through. I'll have this down here as well. And then uh, Bible handbooks 
uh, can be helpful. I think a Bible handbook actually might be one of the most helpful things because in the Bible handbook, and I'm going to recommend MacArthur's Bible handbook. I think it's an excellent resource. I've used it um, many times in the past. Um, it's going to supply uh, key things like setting, key people, key doctrines, the author, the date, the background, historical background and themes, and it'll often supply you with uh, an outline of the book. So, and it does in this particular handbook. So, um, I'll have all of these down here for you to look at and just refer to if you'd like to look at them. Um, so I hope this class um, puts a little desire, more, more desire and hunger into you to, to look at uh, God's word more deeply and more thoroughly. So why don't we have a word of prayer and then I'll let you be dismissed. Father, we give thanks to you for the opportunity and the time that we've had this morning to look at these tools and resources uh, that you've given us uh, so that we might know your word better. Father, help us not to rely so heavily upon other people and their scholarship and to study to show ourselves approved unto you ourselves, rightly dividing the word of truth. I pray for your blessing on your people as they study your word to know you more wholly and more fully and to, um, to honor you and live for you and to be able to share your truth with those around them. We pray for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.